Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy book launch. My name is Simon Bendini and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy and I am uh, um, the author of the book uh, that is being launched on this occasion and as you can imagine that is uh, <coughs> an occasion of some embarrassment to be chairing an event in which your own work is being launched. Um, I'm very grateful to Giuliana Cardinale and Christine Musholt for arranging the proceedings for this evening and for doing me the favour of arranging that the speakers are not talking about the book. <laughs> they asked me what I would like to be happening this evening and um, and I wanted it to have something to do with the book, but not anything about what I was putting in the book. And so I decided that the discussion would be based around the dedication. I hope you can see this in a moment. Go on. You can do it, you did it a minute ago. <laughs> There we go. Oh, I put it on it's here, but not on there. Since I told you. Yeah, but it's on here. Oh, didn't tell me that. Oh, okay. It was going to be that. All right. Okay. This is a this is a dedication of the book, and it says to Jeffrey and the angels. Now, uh, so Jeffrey there is a, uh, an, um, an Englishman who works in America called Jeffrey Bennington. And um, I was at a talk that he gave in Montreal a couple of years ago where he was talking about the task of translating Derrida's works into English. And um, he said, you know, translators are angels because they're the only ones who don't need the translation. They can already read it. And so they're doing a service to those like me whose levels of French are simply not up to reading the original. And because I am simply incompetent to read Derrida in French, the only way Derrida could have possibly arrived to me at all was because of the work of the angels. Um, I'm very happy that, in fact, we have one of them tonight here with us, with Rachel Bowlby. Let me see if we can get back. Okay, uh, send to projector. There, right. Um, so what I wanted, uh, what I hoped for, was some exploration of this relation, not, not, not in my own case, or not just in general of uh, absurd monolinguals like me, who could only ever read Derrida in English, but something beyond about this relationship between Derrida and brackets English or the English and uh, there was a there was a way in which this relation was played out very often there was something called the Cambridge affair around a, an honorary doctorate for Derrida um, where a, sort of a, a litany of charges were brought against him they never ever cited any references but they brought these charges anyway um, in which 
it was said that this is an English reception of Derrida. Derrida's work would, quote, deprive the mind of its defences and undermine the fundamental grounds which provide for intellectual inquiry. And his work was called stupid and ridiculous, degenerate in its contempt for argumentative rigour and its barbarous neologisms and idiotic wordplay. That's a good start, isn't it? So um, Derrida and the English looked like a, a failed story from the beginning. Failed better, I suppose we're going to try. Um, but there, the <coughs> bracketed the, Derrida and the English, is one thing is about, as it were, this difficult to judge sense of his impact on our language, on my language, on English, and our relation to our language, or my language, English, not my language entirely. Um, so Derrida and English, but the English, that's people like me, but an English would be about the university discipline in some way, uh, English studies or literature, English literature, and the way in which people who work in those areas um, have received or have had some kind of encounter <laughs> or some kind of transformation either uh, even in the relation to Derek in a relation to Derek's work. So um, what uh, Juliana and Christina did was to invite three people who've all in one way or another spent a considerable amount of their time in this encounter with Derrida, uh, all of whom are working in one way or another in departments concerned with literature and perhaps more or less with English literature. Um, Rachel Bowlby here from uh, University College London, who as I mentioned is also a translator of Derrida's work into English. Um, Robert Eaglestone at the end, uh, Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Royal Holloway, and Sarah Wood from the School of English at the University of Kent. And uh, they'll have um, some time, 10, 15 minutes each, with, without interruption, um, uh, where they can make their own way into this topic. And uh, then maybe if there's some time, we'll, I'll try and generate some discussion amongst them or ask them some questions <coughs> myself. And then there'll be an opportunity for you in the last half an hour or so to ask questions in return. Um, and we're going we're gonna to go in the order we've got <coughs> here, I think, so it's a sort of alphabetical order. Rachel, you get to go first, so please. Oh, do I do it from here? Of course, yeah. yeah. There's no need to, no need to move. And I, I don't know if it was tactical or not, but I don't know if it's happened to the rest of you, but um, Simon's book, in fact, arrived... Um, yesterday morning by courier, which was just enough time to have a look at it, but not enough time to, to really read it. And it is, a, it is a fantastic book. I know we're not supposed to be doing advertisements, but it, it, it's, it's really good. I've, I've been reading it every moment I could since. So the, the title of this, which was this, this <coughs> wonderful Derrida and brackets, the brackets, English. Of course, there's English and there is English. There is English and there is the English, which would come out the same in French, l'anglais, for both English and the English. The very nice title for our panel quickly points to all sorts of smaller and larger splits and sprawls of language and identity on either side of the and, and with or without the bracketed the. In one division, you have Derrida's writing in French 
And then alongside that, to the right of that, you have English, what he's not speaking or writing in, but what he's probably being read in. Much more, it may be, than he's being read in French. In another division, where English is thought of as one language among others, you have a question about the language of philosophy. As Derrida's French might seem to continue or else to take over from Heidegger's claims for German as the philosophical language, as both these languages and both these philosophers also look back to Greek and to Plato, also in Heidegger's case to the pre-Socratics, as in some sense the founding language of Western philosophy. And as both these continental languages of philosophy, French and German, stand apart, stand well away across the channel and across the ocean from English as the last and lame destination of philosophy, the site or scrap heap of a thousand and one necessarily bad translations into a <coughs> fundamentally bad, that is, unphilosophical language. So if we're thinking along linguistic lines, if we're ignoring the English the, then we get a whole set of Derridean issues to do with the identity of a language, the identity of a philosopher who writes in a particular language, the history of different languages in relation to philosophy, and in particular, given that this is English and that this is Derrida, the problem or the possibility of translation. But where in all this is English, poor old English? Let alone the, the, the poor old English. Putting back the the, then, Derrida and the English becomes a matter of the folk over here. Folk who probably, and for the most part, speak English, but whose defining characteristic for this purpose is to do with their place. English, not American, for instance, or in particular. Because when it's a question of translating French into English, that's actually a distinction, English or American, that matters. For the French, if not for the English, or the Americans, or perhaps the British, whoever they may be, for the French, there is an official distinction to be made between the two. The book review section of Le Monde routinely adds an additional word in brackets after stating if a book's been translated from English, traduit de l'anglais. Almost always, it's either Etats-Unis or Royaume-Uni, that's America or Britain, though you occasionally get somewhere else, such as Nouvelle-Zélande. So, l'anglophonie, or anglophonie, as we might call it, getting it back from the French, is more than one, is most commonly British and American, just as the English and the Americans um, would never be taken to be the same group. So I was thinking with the title of this panel in mind, not just about Derrida and the English language, let alone the English language, but about Derrida and England and Derrida and the English. In the early years of Derrida's fame and notoriety, both or whichever, the British Isles seemed to be offshore indeed in relation to the main intellectual traffic taking place between France and America. This involved not just Derrida, of course, but a number of other French, other French philosophers and theorists, theorists being the curious new word by which they were known in English. The uptake of Derrida, both the man and his works, in American universities was so regularly commented on <coughs> that it became a cliché, whether negative or positive. On the positive side, as a student in England in the late 70s, fascinated by the new French theory that was coming out and was a long way from yet being taught on university courses, you saw America as the place, along with Paris itself, where French theory was actually going on. English common sense, 
English empiricism, English parochialism, all of these deridable local qualities were keeping us well away from the French ideas that were meanwhile crossing easily between Paris and New Haven, or Ithaca, or later between Paris and California. But it's in this context, a caricatural context, of course, that I want to set up a single extraordinary exception to this picture of an England left out in the travels between France and America. I'm thinking of an English moment, an English afternoon, that is described by Derrida himself in the postcard and is dated precisely to a June day in 1977 and a college at Oxford. Invited by Jonathan Culler and Alan Montefiore, Derrida was giving an afternoon seminar at Balliol. When I thought of this moment, both as a passage in the book and as a memory as I was there when it happened, I realised that I couldn't be sure whether Derrida had given his seminar in French or in English. What I recalled was a blackboard and the word parasite, or was it parasite, same thing, and that Derrida was talking so very slowly and clearly and making his argument so carefully, beautifully, step by step, that like an old-fashioned class at school, it was actually quite easy to follow. So perhaps, across the mists of time, and in defiance of all Derridean logic, the shell of a particular language, was he talking in French or in English, dissolved, to leave only the core or husk of a purely deconstructive parasite, or parasite. Perhaps on the other hand, or at the same time, it was that Derrida was speaking with such exquisite slowness that even a total novice, like me, couldn't fail to grasp something of what he was on about. When I looked up the passage in the postcard, I found that the question about what language Derrida was speaking in was answered for me. It's boldly stated at the start of Derrida's own account, which, in summary, goes like this. And now I'm, I'm quoting... The day before, a seminar at Balliol um, around difference with an A, which my um, word programme, of course, corrected to E. In English, that's what he says, in English, colon, more than, ever more than ever before, I made out I was speaking or thinking what I was saying at the same time. Um, I was speaking or thinking what I was saying at the same time. Afterwards, on the lawn, the discussion continued. And there's a good-looking male student who comes up and asks Derrida why he doesn't commit suicide. Asks him partly to seduce me, he says, I think. It's the day after this occasion that Jonathan Culler and Cynthia Chase take Derrida to see the amazing image in the Bodleian Library that will give Derrida the cover and the title of his book, the image of Plato and Socrates, the one who spoke and the one who wrote, front to back and in reverse. So what we have, in effect, if we wanted to allegorise the occasion, and why not, um, is a marvellous accumulation of histories, as Derrida, the modern philosopher, meets Plato and Socrates, the classical Greeks, in a medieval building of Oxford, the meeting enabled by two Americans, um, Jonathan Culler and <coughs> Cynthia Chase. So we have an emblematic form with these two days together, a lineup or lineage that goes from ancient through medieval to the present, and all this preceding the mediation of modern French philosophy in English, in an old English college, and on an old English lawn. And that, that lawn, that la pelouse, is a very strong signifier of Englishness um, to a, a French reader. But what of, what of Derrida's English, Derrida's in English, en anglais, 
followed by the declaration of something to do with the relationship between thinking and speaking. Plus que jamais j'ai fait semblant de parler ou de penser ce que je disais en même temps. Um, I think what he means, I've skewed it slightly in the way I translated it, is that, that uh, he was um, trying to make out that he, uh, as he was speaking, it was at the same time that he was thinking it, uh, rather than uh, reading from um, a, a prepared written text. Um, and that, um, according to Jonathan Culler, is what he always used to like to do. I mean, he, did, he would always prepare, he would always write something out first, but he liked to give the impression of... Um, Letter of it coming out sort of at the time uh, as he spoke. Um, and at any rate, the, what he says does seem to be about various kinds of separation or distance, including the distance from the, the Oxford occasion that are being simulated deliberately as not existing. A simultaneity, um, ide ideally, of a thought and its utterance, its becoming speech, that in reality involves preparation a pretense that the English is without effort, comes naturally, as naturally as would the French. The Derrida in Oxford episode appears now, many decades later, like a kind of sunlit vignette, lost in an innocent schoolroom or playtime past, the class, then the lawn, like some founding myth of the hybrid or parasitical origins of theory in England, if we can speak of such a thing. This was before Derrida's work was really well known or notorious, it was long before the painful English moment of the contested Cambridge Honorary Doctorate that Simon mentioned just now, and which he writes about very eloquently in his book. But in later times, and this is no doubt what the protesters then were protesting about at Cambridge, deconstruction would find its place indoors, in the seminar rooms, and on the syllabuses of British universities. And Derrida would also become a regular, or fairly regular, visitor, giving talks and seminars. And his English got a lot more relaxed. At the time of the Oxford seminar, Derrida didn't used to speak in English, wasn't used to speaking in English. When he did his month-long visits to Yale each year, his seminars were in French. By the end of his life, he was able to keep a huge audience hooked as he answered questions in English in England for an hour and a half or more. There was no longer, it might seem, any need for the English to learn French in order to follow Derrida, to learn French through trying to follow Derrida. It's one more sign of these languageless times in which English will globally get you through. Much has been gained, of course, by this anglicisation of Derrida, in which I include all the translating, of course, of Derrida, the person whose English changed, uh, and, and the, the books that were translated. But at the same time, inevitably, much has been lost. So I want to end with an unphilosophically practical suggestion, a kind of advertisement, and a kind of telling off to Simon, I realise now. Um, if you read Derrida in English, but have, as we strangely say, some French, any French, you know, at all, then do try reading Derrida in French, in the original, with a translation to hand, of course, and especially to begin with. Slowly, as slowly as you like, or as you can, sit outside on the grass. In the end, it will be easier than reading a translation and wondering where and how the English has moved away from the French. Or at least, if not necessarily easier, it will be different. Thank you. I like my angels. <laughs> I'll try. So, uh, Rob and Bob, you can... Uh...
Well, I'm going to begin with another. Oh, that's one out. I'm going to begin with another afternoon. Uh, one of the things in Simon's excellent book is about <laughs> um, is about uh, the context of, of uh, words and, and reading. And while I was reading Simon's excellent book, I was also reading Dinah Antill's instead of a letter. I haven't finished it yet. So I feel bad at all about. And she has this fantastic two paragraphs which I'm going to read, which are about Englishness. That's what I'm going to talk about. Um, an old man near death once gave my uncle great pleasure by telling him that a treasured memory, something that remained for years in his mind as a vignette of the England he loved, had been a glimpse once caught as he was driving by of my uncle riding in the park at Beckton. It's a pretty park, well planted with groups of beech trees and oak trees, sloping gracefully down to the lake beyond which the wood known as the Lake Covert rises, and mildly dominated by the house, standing on its balustraded terrace with a great cedar tree at one corner of it to break its slightly austere Georgian lines. <clears throat> it was a perfect October afternoon, said the old man. There was the Lake Covert, all golden in its autumn leaves, reflected in the water, and there were you, cantering along beside the lake on that black of yours. What a beautiful horse he was with a couple of dogs running behind you. I watched you and I thought, now that's a lovely scene. That's England, and I've never forgotten it. Describing the conversation and the old man's emotion, my uncle gave a slightly depreciating laugh, but he was not only touched, he was satisfied. The man had recognised in him and his setting what he himself felt deeply to be their true nature. And as he savoured it, he was likeable rather than absurd. He was moved by a vision of something which he dearly loved and which had comforted him, comforted him when, during the war, he was badly wounded. He felt genuinely it was worth dying for. To have said to him, but you're not England. You and what you represent are only one tiny fraction of England, an archaic one at that, preserved not by deeds or virtue, but by money most of which you yourself do not earn. He, to have said that would have been to attack not a fancy, but a rooted belief. He might have answered, all right, so it's preserved by money, money in the hands of right people, of people like us. What further argument do you need for the existence of such people and such money? He and his life have been snug, all, he and his like have been snug all their lives, and snugness breeds smugness. But smugness is too small a word for what it feels like from the inside. From the inside, it feels like moral and aesthetic rightness. From inside, it's people like me who question it, who look stupid, ugly and pitiful, and ungrateful too. Why admit that the grammar school boy, the self-made businessman, the artist, the foreigner, or whatever, are just as likely to be the best as we are, when such admission must attack certainty as tax certainty, the coziest of all gifts bestowed by privilege. It's not only ingratitude, it's treachery. Okay, so that's the sort of model of uh, thinking about, about Englishness. And I suppose um, when I was asked to talk about this, I was thinking about when I first came across Derrida, and I, I, I never met him or uh, I didn't go to seminars or anything. When I first discovered Derrida, it was at my provincial northern university where there are sort of rumours and, and strange stories about this thing deconstruction that no one properly understood and, and uh, people tried to teach us about but didn't understand themselves and it was all terribly shocking and frightening we weren't really allowed to do it and of course that's obviously if you tell people they're not allowed to do something of course immediately they go and find books by Christopher Norris on Derrida or books by Derrida um, and uh, that's what I did anyway so um, uh, and that's how I came across it. It strikes me as a very interesting question to ask, why did this uh, difficult, 
slow, demanding French philosopher grow successfully in English departments? What, what's what's behind that? And I want to. I think I've got three. I've got three things to say about that, which all circle around. Um, they circle around treachery. Okay. So the first one I think is that. Um, it's obviously an, an enormous, uh, perhaps revolutionary thought is too strong, but an enormous, complicated thing coming out of Paris. Okay, And as we all know, the soil in England is not very fertile for that. And in fact, you can find, if you're interested in, in European philosophy, all, all sorts of uh, echoes of people who've been shoved out of uh, the philosophical mainstream in, in England. Okay, people like Isaiah Berlin, for example, who, despite being a great intellect, didn't think himself even enough to be a a philosopher in Oxford doing philosophy. Um, people like a generation before Berlin, uh, Collingwood, again marginalised in Oxford because of interest, his interest in the shape of European philosophy and, and not doing strictly analytic philosophy. People like Iris Murdoch, for example, who I don't think she says so explicitly, but is clearly sort of run out of town or run out of the faculty by the Oxford philosophy faculty and writes complicated philosophical novels and tries to write about uh, Derrida. She writes about Derrida very badly, actually, but um, tries, is, is interested in things coming across and trying to understand things. So one reason is that there's all this intellectual energy and it can't find anywhere, it can't find a home in philosophy, uh, and so it finds a home in, in English. Okay, so why does it find a home in English? This is my second reason. Well, I feel embarrassed saying this at the LSE, but uh, as everyone at the LSE knows, uh, English is a very shallow discipline, terribly, terribly trendy, faddy, uh, not really interested in, in deep roots, very undisciplinary as a discipline. Well, that's how it looks like from the outside. Inside it, we know we are cutting edge, exciting, always on to the newest thing, because that's the sort of interesting people we are, because that's what novels and poems are like. They're always complicated to understand. Derrida says, you know, we cut there, you can't pin them down, or um, here's a beautiful metaphor of trying to understand. Uh, uh, literature with a, a digger digging up stones, riverbed, and the water, which is what literature is going through the edge of the digger. So, um, we, in English, it's a complicated discipline, always trying to do new things. But one of the complications about English lies in its name. This is what I was going to think about what I was trying to say. English, of course, uh, unlike other subjects, names not just a, a academic discipline, the study of literature, but also a national identity and a national language. And there's always been a really strong and weird bond between the, the national identity and the subject. And indeed, if we had more time, I would take you through the history of the discipline of English, uh, beginning, of course, not in England, but in India in 1813, when the East India Company's charter is renewed uh, with the proviso that we're no longer allowed to, spot, to sponsor missionaries. And so the people who ran the East India Company, as well as chasing Johnny Depp, uh, also had to re reinvent uh, a way of um, brainwashing, to speak very crudely, the native population. So, because they couldn't use missionaries, they said, let's teach them uh, English values by teaching them English literature. So it becomes a, a brainwashing tool. And then it's re-imported, like so many other things, in the 1860s and 70s, back into uh, Britain to, and to quote, educate our savages, 
the working class, the large uh, Irish migrant population, particularly in the East End. Okay, so English itself has a strange disciplinary nationalistic uh, history. Um, but that's not, I think, the, the key reason why uh, uh, deconstruction took such grasp in, or dared such grasp in English departments. The key reason, I think, is explained very well in a bravura, I can't even say that, passage in uh, Simon's book. Lots of Simon's book, particularly the first part, is about the objections to uh, Derrida. And he cites one uh, critic uh, who says, look, when I say, open the door for somebody and say, after you, it's very clear, it's very clear what it means. And Simon just goes through this and does a lovely uh, creative writing exercise. <laughs> okay, he says like, say after you, she got my meaning immediately. She got my meaning immediately. Derrida clearly wrong. Okay, and Simon says, uh, yeah, but if you say if you if you write, he held a door open for an elderly female colleague and said, after you, the meaning sort of changes. He held the door open for an elderly female colleague and said, after you, after he had said this, he left her as he did the day before. That also changes the the meaning. He held the door open for an elderly female colleague and said, after you, after he said this, he followed her as he did the day before. Okay. Can we affirm that when he said, artist Simon now, after you to her, it's absolutely clear she got his meaning immediately. These are just two paths. There really are countless contexts into which one might graft this little text machine. We shall see this possibility of grafting a textual form into strictly countless different contextual change is, according to Derrida, fundamental to its being the textual form it is. So the point I try to express not very well using Simon's fantastic example is that the sort of thing that Derrida seemed to be doing, certainly at first, certainly it seemed to me in the 60s and 70s, seemed very close to lots of things that happen in English anyway. Okay? And indeed, there's a million books, all of which I read when I was doing my PhD, about how Derrida and close reading, which is what English is really about, about different contexts and working out what things mean, are very, very close. And then there are a million more books saying they're not at all close. They're very different things. Okay? So there's a strange treachery there about the things being the same and not being the same at the same time. But that sense of how it's done, of moving from a text to a wider thought, is something that Derrida does and something that English as a discipline traditionally did or does. And that leads me to my last point, um, which is also about treachery. One of the things that um, was true when I was told I wasn't allowed to do Derrida when I was a young man, and it's true about English as a discipline, is it's very contrary. It's a very treacherous discipline full of people like, uh, in the 70s, Terry Eagleton decrying all sorts of things, full of uh, people um, decrying England and Englishness, okay, in exactly the Diana Attil kind of way. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, a discipline that ever since it was invented in 1813 or codified in 1917, or you want to trace it being, is a discipline which being obsessed with all sorts of unnational things. Okay, there was a big report into, into teaching of English um, in the 1920s, and the report tried to say English was supposed to be supporting you know, the national identity. I didn't quite phrase it that way. Um, uh, but a critic was supposed to be a missionary, and English was supposed to be supporting national identity. But even as they were saying that in the 1920s, critics were attacking that and taking it apart. And that just has carried on. 
So weirdly, the most anti-English discipline in the university has been the one called English. And I, I think that's partially, and I flatter my discipline now, is because it's, it's, we like books and novels and stuff, and one of the reasons we like them is because of a sense of justice and ethics. Okay? Not properly understood, all a bit confused, trying to work things out, but there's something going on there. Uh, F.R. Levis talked about life, and by life, I'm not quite sure what he meant, but he meant something. He meant something. He meant something ethical, didn't he? That's what he meant. He meant something ethical about it. All right, and that's always stuck with us as a discipline passed on. Um, and uh, there's something in that of deconstruction too. And again, Simon talks about that. Simon talks about the the ethical turn in deconstruction. Um, I think that the, that was right there, right from the beginning, when Derrida writes his long. Uh, review of Levinas's Totality and Infinity in 1963, that's clearly about ethics, that's clearly obsessed with, with justice. And I think that sense somehow is also something that it's not just young men in libraries being told they can't do something, but a sense there's something really important that is akin to what English is sort of, English the subject is sort of about, is sort of going on in deconstruction, which also I think became inc incredibly appealing something really important um, and something, if you like, treacherous, which is what English people in English departments really like. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Okay, and finally, Sarah Wood. I've got a kind of guide to what I'm going to say, which I wrote for me, but might be useful for you as well. Um, and it goes, poet, psychoanalysis, body, monkey, angle, prepared piano, angels with speckled faces, impact, and then back to poet again. So that's, that's it, really. Um, <laughs> but the, the first thing I want to begin with is a, is a confession from Derrida, and all Derrida's confessions are interesting, but this is where I wanted to start. It comes from an interview he gave, which wasn't published until um, last year, to a, a Spanish newspaper in the, in the early 90s, and this ended with a sort of questionnaire. And the, in response to the, the question or proposal, what I would like to be, he answered, a poet. Poet. So we know from Simon's book, and many other books, and from his own books too, that Derrida is a contributor to our philosophical heritage and the founder of the philosophical movement of deconstruction. And without wanting to argue with that, I'd want to, in a very traitorous kind of way, say yes, but still, he would have liked to be, of all things, a poet. And this active living desire marks his engagement with language, with translation, and with the very idea of a national language. Derrida was extremely attached to French and believed in writing it as beautifully and as accurately as possible. But he wanted to be a poet. And a poem is, he says, thing beyond languages. I think there's a, there's a contact here with what Rachel was saying about the dissolving shell of language. It's a very beautiful phrase. And this is what Derrida says in, um, in his essay that everybody tends to call the hedgehog essay when they've read it because it has a hedgehog in it. Our poem, our poem does not hold still within names nor even within words. 
It is first of all thrown out on the roads and in the fields and across the lawns, I think, also. Mm -hmm. Thing beyond languages, even if it sometimes happens that it recalls itself in language when it gathers itself up, rolled up in a ball on itself, it is more threatened than ever in its retreat. It believes it is defending itself and it loses itself. And there's the figure there of the hedgehog getting more vulnerable as it tightens in on itself, but that there's something vagrant and wandering about poet. And I'd say that I can't but agree with everything that Robert said. Yes, but I don't think it's through the academy that this creature travels and will travel. It's not through being turned, for example, into a theme. It's really wild and like an animal. And that's what interests me. It's the thing beyond languages which is still not outside the text. Derrida can scent it, he uses the metaphor of scent, of flair, in of grammatology to talk about reading, and it's there in his writing. And it's there for psychoanalysis too, and, and for, for thinking about the self. Two analysts that Derrida was friends with and, and read and wrote about, Nicholas Abraham and Maria Torok have an interest in what they call the poetics <coughs> of the psyche. Um, and I don't mean it's a kind of wild psychoanalysis in terms of psychoanalytic concepts being applied in a carefree way outside the institution, but it has to do with a kind of listening that credits the soul itself with poetic powers. That we all survive, we are marked or wounded, and we survive in this way of thinking by means of becoming poem. So when I say that Derrida is a poet, I'm thinking also about something which is absolutely universal, a human. And this becoming poem is an invention and an improvisation which necessarily involves repetition. And that's why psychoanalysis, above all, keeps evolving and changing. And for Abraham and Torok and for Derrida, an analysis could be a reading in more than one language. They wrote a book about Wolfman and all the languages in which he composed himself and, and lived and, and suffered. And all the things that you can hear and miss here across languages. So we are marked, we are written on by our lives, and this interested Derrida. And so I think that his best English readers are likely to be the ones with the liveliest relation to their own language. You'll probably remember him saying, invent in your language if you can or want to hear mine. And there's a reference here in neuroscience, because everybody talks about neuroscience now, it's <laughs> humanities and sciences. Um, <laughs> this, this, it, it involves bodily processes. So I kind of fell upon this in a book I was reading recently, I was thinking about, about the body. So the neuroscientists are onto this. The human mind's understanding and use of concepts, symbol and metaphor derived from our experience of bodily action. And I think there's something in the way that Derrida writes, in the things he thinks about and writes about, that knows this too. And so in the concept, in the case of the concept of grasping, according to Galeza and Lakoff, 2005, send you the reference afterwards if you're interested. Um, one would expect the parietal premotor circuits that form functional clusters for grasping to be active not only when actually grasping, but also when understanding sentences involving the concept of grasping. Like this one of Derrida's, and he says, I cling to the idiom. But what if the idiom were only fur? I'd lose my grip straight away. 
So there are, there are two things here about his kind of monkey relation to, to language, um, his baby monkey relation to, to language, so the, the animal and the child. It's a question of a relatively unsophisticated relationship to the signifier. So all those things about the, the sheer kind of uh, fortuitous, uh, lightweight dodginess of the, of the anglicist here, I'm, I'm very happy to confirm. If deconstruction is childlike, that's another thing that Derrida had to say. So this is all you know, in, in, in the service of my argument that it, it's not through the academy, I think, that, that Derrida's work will find its, uh, its, its, its main future. So clinging to the idiom and the traumatic separation from the idiom, Derrida is a poet because his writing works at levels that are not only useful for communication or for signifying. The body knows this before the mind does, and I have some empirical evidence about this from my friend Jacek Gutera, who's a poet in Poland and an academic who works on Derrida. And his first acquaintance with Derrida was in the office of Tadeusz Szlawek, who, who was his professor. And he remembers his first conversation with, with his professor, which was about of grammatology, and he remembers approaching... Um, approaching the office and he, he could all he could hear very very loud this is Poland in the, probably the late 80s um, is the sex pistols very very loud very very English very very good God save the Queen and <laughs> they talk about of grammatology and they talk about of grammatology not de la grammatology at that point uh, Poland um, as I gather in, in China um, this was a, a news that reached me in 2006 so things may be changed but at that in those countries, the main language of reading Derrida was English. Now, poetry, and this is something that's said by, by Phil Leonard in a, an article that's about to appear, is not as familiar responses to deconstruction might suppose, seen by Derrida as ultimately breaching or obliterating the habitus, but a strange topology of place and displacement. It's what Robert was giving us, I think, in the description from Diana Atthill's book, where geographical thresholds, national frontiers, and cultural borders are asserted and effaced, where the poem transmits beyond the territory to which it declares its affiliation and in which it finds its inspiration. As inscription and aperture, it becomes geopoesis, though the poem, the making, that shapes this encounter is neither a fixed expression of cultural location nor bringing forth of new spaces, geographies, or territories, but a connection with place that also moves across limits and opens onto other spaces. And when I read this, I kept thinking of the monkey again, which the psychoanalyst Imre Herman writes about, which Derrida is reading when he talks about clinging to the idiom, about its little hands clinging and seeking, and kind of that thing that monkeys and that writers can do, which is to sort of move through the air just using their hands. Derrida likes Balamé's notion of mots anglais, English words, but also angled words. And when he translates from or on into English, when he reads in English texts, like uh, Romeo and Juliet, or The Merchant of Venice, or Hamlet, or a poem by Hopkins, he likes to listen, and he likes to hear other words in the word, some perhaps very ancient um, thinking about his discussion of iterability in which he goes back to Sanskrit and he goes back to kind of shared roots between his language and ours. And when you were talking about justice, um, I couldn't remember if I left this bit in, and I'm glad I did, but he, he talks about the notion of self-taste in Hopkins' poetry, about imagining what the other 
how the other experienced themselves, the self-taste of someone other than oneself. It's a, it's a thing that Derrida's very interested in. He's interested in it when he reads Husserl. He's interested in it when he reads Hopkins. But he really gets some kind of juice in justice. There's some kind of gravy flavor. There's some kind of savor in the, the letter and the sound and in the history of the word for Derrida. He's interested in writing by the ear. And this involves acting upon language and allowing the linguistic invention of others. As a reader, Derrida would notice and remark events of language even at the level of the letter. But he was not, I think, a man of words, if that means a virtuoso of the language instrument that was given to him. He improvised, he remade. And this reminded me, in the 60s, the artist Namjoon Paik used to prepare pianos. I don't know if any of you have seen photographs of these things. Uh, Namjoon Paik was responding to John Cage, and uh, it, there's one that I've seen. It's a very, very funny piece where the instrument's been doctored and painted, things are grafted onto it, phones, weighing scales, underwear. It's becoming inside out. It's a piano that's really lived, and the signs of life are all over it. And there it is, and you look at it, this prepared piano, and you're thinking, how do I play this? Do I play this? How? Or who or what must I become to be ready for this prepared piano, which is also unprepared, deprepared, dishevelled, and generally in its underwear? It's artfully ready, and it's not ready. What kind of piano action are we going to head for here? And Derrida's language is like that, and I think that his texts do that kind of work. I've got a kind of quick memory from... It's my phone. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> One of my children ringing me. I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to ignore it because if I look for it, it'll just be a disaster. But Simon dedicated his book to the angels. It could be an angel calling. Um, and my first experience of reading something in French happened in, uh, in Wolverhampton in the late, in the mid 70s, I guess. And it was reading Bernard Frechtman's translation of Miracle of the Rose it was in, in a bookshop. And um, in that book, Genet writes of a time when he's out of miracles and right out of angels. He's alone, and it's as if he's been translated in the literal sense, carried across with the enforced passivity of a prisoner from one state of mind to another. It's one of the things that can happen also when you, when you read as well as in life. The prison has been a very rich place for him. That's where he is. He's in prison, and it's a kind of dream kingdom. It's small, and it's dark, but it's full. But this changes so that, he says, and this is how Freckman puts it, everything was without mystery for me, but that bareness was not without beauty because I established the difference between my former and present view of things, and this displacement intrigues me. Here is a very simple image. I felt I was emerging from a cave peopled with creatures, which one only senses. Angels, for example, with speckled faces, and entering a luminous space where everything is only what it is, without overtones, without aura, what it is, useful. Translations are immensely useful. But I think inscribed in all translations of Derrida, of Genet, of any great text, I've just got today Rambo, translated by John Ashbery, which is absolutely amazing. Inscribed in all these translations is some engagement with the angelic or the monkey, with creatures that one only senses, with some kind of mystery, with some kind of blindness that does not belong to language. The translator has been into the cave. And as a child of 11 or 12 reading Genet, this spoke to me, and I sensed some kind of displacement going on in, in English in my mother tongue. 
and uh, later on when I went to Derrida University, I think the impact of the one had prepared me for the other. And I wanted to say some things about impact, because now, of course, we're all becoming <laughs> David Willett's impact monkeys. And <laughs> <laughs> something about the impact of the mark and something about impact coming from pangere, which is to fasten or to fix or to drive in. But we're talking here about something that you can't drive in. It is like trying to dig up water. Um, and pangere also means to write, and I was trying to imagine what the impact of the Derridian mark would be with all these movements across and across the, across the lawn and across the language and this very gentle suggestion that we might try moving across and looking at another language. And I want to go back also finally to the remark about being a poet. The, the, the question was what I would like to be. And so it's about wishes and desires. And when Derrida writes about poetry, it's in terms of desire. He says you have to renounce knowledge to respond to the question, what is poetry? So in the way that's the end of philosophy, or maybe it's the beginning, it's one end of philosophy or the other. I'm thinking now of what Husserl does in the Cartesian Meditations, that he says all philosophers have to do at some point, which is absolutely to begin. And perhaps that means becoming a poet in order to speak to the ghosts of philosophy. But it certainly means cutting some kind of tie with philosophical tradition. It means becoming one of these traitors, I think, one of these, these kind of alien figures that Robert was talking about. And it means not the smooth and easy movement of circulation, which we might associate with concepts which are tightly defined precisely in order to resist confusion. It means not circulation, but the heart. And when Derrida talks about the poem, he talks about the heart wrapped up in the phrase to learn by heart, and he acknowledged that this was an English idiom, it was a French idiom, it was an Arab idiom, learning by heart. And that translation of poetry remains improbable as an accident, intensely dreamed of, required there, where what it promises always leaves something to be <coughs> desired. And I wanted to kind of put together the angels and the monkeys, who still remain in the university. I think there are some, some of us. Um, against... The, the, the crude notion of impact, the presentist notion of impact, a notion of the impact of desire, the impact of an accident, or the impact of a, of a dream, which I think his work has given us.
in a way we'd only begun to read, anybody had just begun to read. Now, I talked to you, Rachel, before about your early experiences of translating, where, of course, you're translating a work that's beginning to arrive to you, and mm. all the difficulties of, you know, what is this in English? I can't, you know, thinking about how to put this into English, because in a way you're trying to uh, um, get your head around the thing at the same time as trying to put it into English. And, and, and I, I don't know if it was your own case, but you told me once about uh, a kind of um, almost technical rendering of Derrida's French into something that made it very robust and authoritative, but where it was in fact quite relaxed and, mm. and easy writing. And um, I mean, I'm not sure if I've got a question entirely, but it's about what's happened beyond that. There was, there was a time, as it were, when he was absolutely at the height of his fame, and yet in that window, he seems to have hardly arrived. Mm. Is there, is there uh, some sense of uh, that when he, he became less present, another kind of arrival became possible? And is that where we're in, where we're at now? Is, is, kind of a, a little wave, a second wave, or a third or fourth, you know, we know, uh, wave upon wave, no doubt, but um, do, do you get yeah, a sense yeah. now that, that um, there's another Derrida who can come, because a now the big wave has come? Yeah. Hmm? A second Derrida. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very, it's very interesting that you've um, used the word arrive, because it is um, a, a, a Derrida word in French, and uh, it's one of the words he uses for talking about the unpredictable as ce qui arrive and 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 a sort of often with sort of semi messianic overtones of a, of a of a kind of being that might arrive, but some, but it's uh, he, he associates it very much with it and what he wants to talk about in terms of the the future, l'avenir as as what we don't know about, even though some kinds of future may be entirely um, impactfully predictable or predictably <laughs> predictable or, or whatever kind of predictable it is, and and. Uh, and I think every, everything you were saying then is, is very much about that. How the uh, what, what would it mean for Derrida to have arrived? It, would it be a, a Derrida that we we fully understood and took on board, and um, he who had been delivered to us? Um, a Derrida sent sent in in a, in a fated sense, or sent in a package where we already knew um, what it was we were getting, and we'd ordered it on the internet or something <laughs> like that. I mean, all these different kinds of, of arrival and dispatch and and um, uh, sending out. Um, are so integral, as you, as you know, to, to, to the, uh, the whole way he, he's thinking. What would it mean for, for his thought to have um, permeated, to have penetrated, to have made its way in, into another, another culture or an, another language? And as far as the thing with, with, the, with Derrida and English, or the English discipline that Robert was talking about, I think, I mean, my, uh, from my neck, my particular neck of the English woods, which don't let's talk too much about at UCL, I mean, I, I, I don't think that um, Derrida or theory ever, ever had much impact in, in any, se any sense of the word. And so it's quite, it's quite an intriguing thing that it, there are some... Some Englishes where it did, and some Englishes where it didn't. Mm -hmm. But in the in in, in the in the Englishes, as in English departments, where it, it did, where he did, or it did, um, I think it's true that there is a there's a sort of second stage now where it's become very. Um, I don't like the word domesticated because domesticated implies both it's a kind of it's, it's anti kitchens, but also it's <laughs> it implies a kind of moment of origin when it was all pure and the real thing in some way. So don't, that, that's the wrong word. But it, it has become so institutionalised 
Um, so much a part of syllabuses in most uh, English courses, you do your theory, and then it's you know, one week is data, one week is Latin, is maybe psychoanalysis, and one mm. week is you know your post-structuralism intro, and, and and so on and so forth. And so it's very hard for students to get a sense of what was once or what might have been once. Um, a moment of an exciting arrival, an unknownness, especially when the people delivering the thing to them now are, you know, um, <laughs> not exactly looking as if they're in their first youth. And so there's, a something, there's something that's sort of changed there too, I think. And, and in, in a way, nothing has replaced that moment, that first fine moment of theory in England, which would be maybe the 70s and the 80s, primarily. So there hasn't been anything equivalently... Um, perceived as, as entirely new and, and changing everything potentially so I think that, that, that there is something that you're probably right about different moments of right. Derrida and exception what, what about you, did you have any kind of feelings about this ongoing yeah, movement? I've, I've, well, did, hmm? well I've got quite a lot of things to, I've just <laughs> now <laughs> things, so, um, I think you certainly the misunderstood, I remember being my lectures on Derrida are terrible, but the ones I was given were even when I was young were even <laughs> worse. Um, so there was certainly a misunderstanding. And then this, this time it was the moment it was there was a well, there was a sort of moment of understanding or appreciation where it was more. But then I think all sorts of odd things mm. happened. I'm not tie. I feel a, I don't say anything too uncharitable, but I think one of the things that happens with all um, well, one context is a general backlash against theory anyway, which in our discipline has been a turn to history, which is as if history is a sort of positive, beautiful answer to any complicated mm -hmm. problems. And history in its very worst form is history of the book, which is just uh, one way to shoot people who do it. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a terrible thing to say. I completely withdraw that. But I feel, it's a sense of uh, away from ideas into a sort of a positive sense of history, which even historians don't believe in anymore. Um, so that's one thing in which Derrida is a, is, a, is a part. But also, of course, because it's an... And this is a little bit of the academy, which is different from the... You know, it, it, Derrida becomes a thing where there are gangs. And just as there, in detail in your book, in your excellent book, uh, all the attacks on Derrida, misunderstandings of Derrida, as you said in the beginning, without reading him, you know, part of the counter-reaction to that is a sort of defensive Derrida gang of people. <coughs> And that also, that's also quite a weird thing too. And there are Derrida-flavored journals. It's a strange sort of almost underdean sort of thing where it should be disseminating and moving about and and so on. So I think that's that's also a, a weird counter reaction. Um, but I suppose I, I I want to say I think that um, there's a lovely Derrida essay uh, in the book about lies, and he talks about American student coming to say in American. She says, blah, blah, blah. and he says, if you go back and read the philosophical tradition, that's that's all I really want. And I, and I think there's, yeah. I think there's a whole, I think one of the the real or another version level of arrivals is neither the misunderstanding nor the sort of um, Derrida enthusiasts, if you see what I mean, mm -hmm. but rather a sense that lots of Derridean ideas have sort of percolated through uh, into the wider. Sense. So even at, even at UCL, for example, um, you know it's it's still not the same English as it was because ideas have just come through yeah. into it, and so it's not as it were. I must want to say, you know, happy the person who has no disciples. Is that Nietzsche? But I mean that sense of of there being a thing that's spread through is it another form of arrival. I think. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah. you're the managing editor of a Derrida-ish kind of journal. Oh, incredibly <laughs> strongly Derrida-flavoured. It's terrible because you're editing an issue and you, you think, oh, I'll get people to send me some stuff, and then it's all about Derrida. <laughs> you know, it's just you know, what Derrida says about this, what Derrida says about that, kind of beautifully done, but it's just too too much Derrida. Um, well, there's always room for scholarship, though. I mean, it's not, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. It's boring. Is <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, my is my instinctive and, and yeah. unscholarly? I mean, I said this. I've written a scholarly book all about Derrida. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know self betrayal, yeah. and it's just. Uh, but you know, yeah. It, there's something about Derrida's scholarship that is. It's just. I don't know. I just like Yatsek's story about with the Sex Pistols. You know, and yeah. I like this idea that people might go and do other things with Derrida than than. Than reproduce mm. by the effaced and respectful doubling mm. of commentary of grammatology, page 158, the account of what. And he says, Derrida says it's not easy, and it's mm. not because I've done it, and it's not easy. Um, but it's, you know, why not do something that's more alive? Mm. Um, because his work is so that, and it's so involved with desire. It is so involved with something that makes you want to dance. I, you know, people and people. So you know, I think people who feel that probably do yeah. form gangs, and then they probably have conversations that are less interesting, and they should probably just dance and send each other emails. <laughs> You've got a YouTube um, reference in your excellent book. But but there's, there's a. I, I looked it up last night just out of curiosity, partly to see if it would work. It's a YouTube thing about um, him talking about how the, the inspiration of. Uh, how he realised the newness of his thought for yeah. grammatology. And it, and it worked, and it, uh, it started off. And, and I just started watching all of these YouTube clips, which there are, of Derrida. And it is a, they are actually amazing, if you want to get a sense of um, the, the, sort of the magic mm -hmm. of, of Derrida, um, or, or the wonder of Derrida, and, and the way that he spoke and the way that he inspired people, just go, go to YouTube. But could I just say something about the... the, the the journals and the disciples yeah, because I, I mean I, I, <laughs> well I, I mean I think you're absolutely right that, he, that, that there is that sort of movement away from all of that stodgy <coughs> academic thing in absolutely in the way that he writes but at the same time he was kind of ex extraordinarily loyal to his disciples mm -hmm. and there the were and are Derrida, Derrida disciples who amongst whom are the ones that write those kinds of articles that you're talking about and that, I mean he would write incredibly long um, not fascinating articles in response to things that the disciples had written and there's one I mean I, I, I translated a book called pa Papier Machine, Paper Machine which is Full of this hodgepodge of different kinds of things, including interviews. And there was, it's, but it, from the original, from the French, I was you know, supposed to um, not translate certain things in the book which had already been translated, and in, in addition to translate some things which weren't in the book. And the editor for, of the press had uh, failed to indicate. Um, an enormous batch of um, a, a very long article in which Derrida was responding very boringly to um, some some very faithful um, um, writers about uh, works of him. And when I'd sort of laboriously gone through this utterly dreary task, um, I, I when the book was in production, I realised just by chance that this, this, there was in existence a translation of this 
damn article, which, which you know, no, it had never deserved one translation, let alone two. And I had to sort of apologise to the previous one who, must, who would have otherwise taken it that I'd deemed her translation inadequate and thought you know, someone should do another one. But, you know, there, there are, there, I think that the two things do go on. I mean, they, and it's quite striking that Derrida, unlike, you know, to make a, a, a wild comparison, Freud had, had disciples but was always falling out with them. Derrida remained loyal to, and they mm. remained loyal to him, mm. which is which is a quite mm. an interesting sort of mm. father-son mentor-disciple structure, I think. So. I mean, my own my own uh, relation to this would be uh, through a, 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 a rather bizarre contingency in my own career, where I moved out of a philosophy department into a European Institute here at the LSE, and had to transform myself from somebody who was officially doing. European philosophy, somebody who's doing the philosophy of Europe. And the philosophy of Europe uh, doesn't exist. Yeah. However, what I found was that Derrida's writing was becoming more yeah. and more alive to me about Europe. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I was, as we had a, uh, um, an opportunity to keep exploring something that did feel, does still indeed yeah. for me feel extremely alive. Yeah. I feel very lucky about that. Um, we've now got good time for uh, people in the audience who might like to ask questions or even make contributions. Mm -hmm. if, if it is a contribution, uh, keep it short. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy quite a while ago now, and I haven't really done any study since, and I haven't read much Derrida, but what, and what I have read, I've written very slowly, so I'm sort of introducing myself to it. And I think what I found. I, I study analytic philosophy, and I think as, as I went through my degree, to a point it came, or, or I came to think was that these philosophers were doing this particular sort of philosophy because it kind of gave them truth and gave them reality, and it kind of ended up doing the opposite for me, and it showed me that there was a real flimsiness to the world, um, and that I don't know if there's anything insane. It seems to me that Derrida is kind of in a way. I think why he wasn't accepted, sort of like the boy who pointed out that the emperor wasn't wearing any clothes. Um, but in this case, the crowd had way too much invested in the emperor being a clothes <coughs> to be able to accept what the child was saying. Um, Thank you, Derek. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is, is that an experience of your encounter? Do you think? I mean, I'm just wondering if there's sort of anything in there, or, because I'm kind of a novice. This kind of area. You mean the there, there are a lot of philosophers <coughs> who are regarded as, in one way or another, sort of an unmasker, or yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, revealing the sort of um, habits of our thinking which have become entrenched mm -hmm. and which we follow routinely, and showing that instead of these being routes to insight, in some way they're going further and further into some kind of misunderstanding or illusion. And I think that deconstruction, in some way. In, in its own name, as it were, is, is this sort of unpicking of um, routines of thought, very often mm -hmm. ones that Derrida's learned from Heidegger, actually, about um, certain privileging of certain concepts, which become just part of the of the thinking machine for us. And mm -hmm. I, I, I suppose I do think there is, if you've got a lot invested in that way of thinking, then he's going to appear to be both attacking you and destroying the thing that you think is most valuable. And I think the really interesting thing about Derrida is that he did not want to destroy mm. the things that people mm. felt most valuable. He wanted, to, as I tried to put it in the book, actually, to give it a future. Mm. 
the boy thing as well. Mm. I think that yeah. sounds right. Ellen Siksu, who's I think probably the finest living reader of him, among some other very fine readers of him, um, talked about him as the, a boy playing on the ruins, on, not in the ruins, and she's written yeah. about him as Carabino, and yeah. she's very, there's something about the lightness and the something. Mm. Mm. Okay, I've got one over here, yes. I've got a very brief question about his background. Like, like he was brought up in French Algeria, was he, didn't Is that influence his writing there, the French community? The Algerian connection. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, <coughs> he, he was born when? 1930. And so it was... Yes, I mean, it was a colonial... A colonial time, um, and then in the war, um, it was a time when the anti-Jewish law was imposed more severely and violently than it was in Vichy France. Uh, and Derrida himself was uh, chucked out of secondary school very early on, and this was a big experience for him. So again, Siksu talks, he was born in 34 in, in a different city, yeah. but in Algeria, talks about the two of them growing up surrounded by political and historical signs, which were there, they couldn't understand, but they sort of picked this up. And this, I think, really, really strongly marks Derrida's attitude towards racism, towards anti-Semitism, and towards the, you know, the violent exclusion of, of the other in general. Mm -hmm. So I think it's... Yeah, the Allies invaded all that. They invaded our didn't they? They kicked the, the fascist out of the yeah, Allies. Eventually, yes. And did go back to studying on the Allies? He remained there until he went, sort of in the pre-university time of his life, he went yeah. to study to get into the Ecole Normale right. in France. And he was horribly homesick and sad to leave. But mm. interestingly, in, in a book on Europe that he wrote and, uh, called The Other Heading, mm. um, he says at one point, I am European. And, but then he also says, but not European through and through. Mm. And, uh, I th and I think he thinks that there is no, nothing like a European who is European mm. through and through. But as it were, he, he sort of builds his own sort of personal history in, into, as it were, a piece of mm. the logic of identity as yeah. well. It, it's so he, uh, and he would talk in that book as well of, of, of another shore, the other side of the Mediterranean, as yeah. it were, yeah. uh, um, having its waves coming on. Uh, to the European side. So, so it's interesting that despite the fact that he was born in Al Al Algeria, somehow his immersion in philosophy also sort of made him in some way also European. Mm. Yeah. And you read Gide, and Gide writing about going, being in North Africa as a Frenchman and the kind of erotic excitement mm. of this, which is very important for him, but it's also French lit, right from... Mm. Yeah. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, it's one here. Yeah, um, if we go back to 1977, I'm, I'm thinking about the, um, the encounter with Oxford, um, uh, what's it called? Um, common, ordinary language. Philosophy, oh, yeah. Which seems to me to be incredibly important. Um, mm -hmm. Because here is something that so obviously can be picked up shallow as, as um, not not really dealing with meaning. I mean, Bob quoted from Simon's book on, on After You. But didn't didn't the impetus to um, didn't didn't the impetus for Derrida to, to realise what he had inside him as a critical tool come from this encounter with 
with the absurdities of Oxford language philosophy, ordinary language philosophy. I thought that's what the 1977 account was about. And I also thought that, because I do remember a passage in which he was terribly hurt, perhaps not by that afternoon with um, Jonathan Culler, but he was terribly hurt by the way he was treated yeah. in Oxford. I think so, yeah. I mean, and that he, really fills the postcard, where he yes. then develops yeah. his technique and says, look, you, you people, you, you're, so, you're so naive about the act of communication. I can tell you more about that, and I can tell yeah. you more about that by examining language. But is it the first, is, is 1977 the first time he's been to Oxford? Because I think it said something about 10, 10 years before, and I thought that was the really horrendous occasion, um, from what he says. Yes. Maybe it, maybe and, uh, and, so, and this was a much more kind of peaceable kind of, you know, the small, small scale affair. And the implication is that the other one must, might have been some grander talk with the big wigs, the old guard, yes. in, in attendance. So the culmination was then his, his run-in with John Searle, wasn't it, in Limited? In yeah. Where, where I yeah. think, I mean, for me, he, 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 he runs a ring. Yes, absolutely. Yes. But yeah. I, th yeah. I think, that, I, I, don't, I just want to put the, as it were, the other side of this. He's rather defensive, isn't he? Well, um, no, no. Uh, but <laughs> there's a certain indebtedness of Derrida to in particular, J.R. Austin. Yes, absolutely. And, and the, the whole conception, which he repeats forever, of a certain performativity yes, yes. in language is, mm. uh, is, Austin. is Austin. And I mean, he often says, well, you know, Austin may not have put it like this, and I'm developing mm. this beyond Austin, and so on. But um, I think it would be a mistake to say that he thought that this ordinary language stuff was just uh, superficial mm, yeah, uh, yeah. weaving around yeah. on the surface of things. And that he was really getting to the, the you know, the, the, the centre and the heart of the matter. I think that, that the relationship is much more complicated and uh, differentiated. And do you think that's true with the relationship itself? Well, not really. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it comes in a way because of the the the, uh, the violence of the attack on him from yes, Searle, yes, who wanted to yes. be the proper heir of Austin, yes. whereas uh, Derrida, yes. who wanted to be a, an heir of a but I mean, that's a fantastic um, relationship with England and the English today, yes. isn't it? I mean, it seems to be almost the strongest thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for, for bringing that out. Yeah. Um, and I think, in a way, perhaps Derrida was himself often, um, I mean, he, uh, he would never have said it, but the fact that he was taken up by literature departments and not, not much by philosophy departments must have been a source of complicated feelings for him, I think. Because he came to, he, it, it made him seem a soft philosopher in some ways. Right. right. Yeah, we've got another question here. Yeah, uh, thanks for the talk, guys. Um, a little over a year ago now, um, a group of American university professors and representations put forth the argument that our reading, you know, how we read, should abandon the uh, sort of you know, hermeneutic suspicion that you know, those like Derrida, they, they claim, seem to advocate. Um, and they said that we should return to more, you know, purer, more surface readings, and I was wondering how you might respond to that. Because they, they seem to sort of imply that, uh, you know, the future of reading and the future of criticism should, you know, maybe put Derrida to the wayside. Now, obviously, I, I, I think for, for you that... Uh, Who were these guys? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, 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 you know, I don't remember their, I don't remember their names. We could guess what, we, what they meant if you, if you knew their names, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, but I mean, I, I, you know, granted, it was published in Representation, so you yes. sort of guess where they're... It was probably Walter Ben Michaels and that uh, One of the first was from Brown, I remember that. 
Sorry? One of the professors was from Brown. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, I, but I you said you get back to more surface readings, and yeah, so as opposed to <clears throat> what, were, what were they wanted to get away from? Yeah, so, so their, their issue with, with the reading today, sort of, uh, how, how, how critics will read texts is, is that um, it's, it's been infiltrated by a hermeneutics of suspicion. That's, that's their term. Oh, I see. And, they, and they sort of thought that we were digging too far under the surface and we were yeah. using the, the sort oh, of surface yeah. reading. Is, is that clear? Yes. Yeah. But that might not be an argument against um, Derrida. It might be just to leaving Derrida and all that sort of stuff completely on one um, side. It I, might, I, it I, might I, be I, an I, argument about um, not, not doing uh, elaborate, historically digging readings. and he talks about that, for example, in terms of force, when he says force is the other of language, without which language would not be what it is. So you, you're promised that there'll be something other than language, but then that thing itself helps to constitute language. So that might be something you could, you could kind of make contact with in a text as well. But then there's this warning about leaping over the text to the final signified. They talk in in grammatology where he he, uh, he doesn't want just to to it's the slowness that Bob was mm. talking about um, and the kind of and the patience and sometimes that is the patience of of commentary and of reproducing an, an intended argument and he says that's an important part of reading and I was being rather immature and uh, saying it's boring but yeah, it's absolutely essential you know and if you're having a conversation with someone then it's going to walk off if you don't do it um, but on the other hand he says that's that's never opened a reading. That's never got anything started. And it, that comes back to what he calls force or, or what I've been talking about in terms of desire. Um, it's also why he's not dead. <laughs> his texts constantly are still, for readers still, opening up um, yeah. these, these things which um, sometimes have looked finished. And in fact, you know, he, he would say himself about... Uh, reading Plato, you know, Plato's signature is not finished, as if as if Plato was over for us. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, even Plato, you're yeah, mm -hmm. still ahead of us. Mm -hmm. 
there's Plato to come mm. as well as mm. any other thing, arrivals of the source. Yeah. I was, I was just kind of thinking today because I was trying to. Could you speak up a bit, please? I find some, uh, some of my students about Dark Falls. And, um, British Burning Catholics. And then in preparation for this, I, I kind of went back to the obituaries that were published in The Guardian in, in 2004. And uh, just the sheer violence of it, uh, I still find shocking. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I thought maybe, you know, put it slightly jocularly, maybe had a misfortune to die too near to Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> initial answer that's 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 their we didn't quite say that's their problem but he said that's for them but then he also pointed out that a lot of what he talks about um notions of of deferral that there is no presence that there is no simple perception he sort of waved his arm and said it all makes me angry <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of, kind of beautiful. I mean, that, you know, in some way, he is a tragic. He's a tragic thinker. <laughs> he confronts us with some hard stuff to take, and maybe yeah. that's part of it. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, I also think what the much more not as easy as much more simple thing is is it's very hard 
to read and understand when you first come across it. It's very hard work. You usually have to read at least two things, the piece by Derrida and the thing that he's writing about, yeah. and that's very time-consuming. And it's like anything that people find hard makes them cross. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very hard work to, to have a sense of what's going on. And I think people, if you want to grow up and be a plagiarising journalist, uh, I think it's, that's the sort of thing you don't want to do, and so you might as well reject it. So I think it's a very also sort of simple explanation too. Uh, and it has to do with the body, I think. The things are, you know, the, the kind of, there's, a vibe, there's a vibe in his work, I mm. think. And if you're not on that wavelength and it kind of hits you from the side, it feels horrible. It's xenophobic and fascist, isn't it, essentially, that, it, that the simple-minded cannot stand challenge, they cannot stand by... Uh, xenophobia requires looking into, I mean, in the Jewish question, every other question, obviously. Mm. Why are the Jews... I, ask, I always ask a Jew of, uh, who presents any inclination to possibly answer, why have, why have the Jews always been in trouble? You know? Uh, and what they claim, you know, the chosen people, the rest of it, they put themselves on the line all the time and uh, lead to xenophobic um, reaction. But they have to hold themselves, I think, partly responsible. Um, one has to tread carefully among the fascists. I, I, I mean, I think there's something inside the work as well, rather than just that kind of stereotype yes. representation of the author. And uh, in fact, uh, Nicholas Royal said that Derrida's work arrives like something that goes bump in the day. <laughs> and it's sort of, even when you're awake, it's like it has this uh, effect. And I think one of the reasons for the sort of um, the depth of resistance or anger is, is um, that some things challenge the way you think about the world and, and all, as it were, um, facts and, and things. But other things challenge the way you think about yourself, and I think that that, that kind of relationship to your own position, as it were, as a reader, as a writer, as a thinker, or as a teacher, um, the demand that you're going to have to uh, rethink your own situation, call yourself into question. There's a lot of resistance, I mean, in, in anybody, and in, to, to that kind of thing. But did you not have a, one of my favourite moments of my intellectual life, which hasn't got many favourite moments, was sitting in the library <coughs> reading Violence and Metaphysics and suddenly going, Oh, that's what you mean! <laughs> it's like, what didn't you just say? And it was just, I've been doing it for days, my eyes were bleeding, and I was like, Oh, okay, no, I'm. So it was an amazing thing of like, Ah! Oh. Yeah, two weeks later you'd have gone back and said, Oh, that's not quite. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it was that sense of, oh. Well, you were talking about understanding and misunderstanding earlier, and, and um, one of the things I cite in the book is somebody reading Wittgenstein, looking back on his own trajectory through his reading career with Wittgenstein, seeing that his own understanding was at all these steps a sort of misunderstanding. And uh, I think that, that relationship to the text yeah. of, of one where your own best efforts as it were, never bring the thing to an end is, um, is very distinctive. Mm -hmm. Well, now, we've reached time's up, I'm afraid. Uh, I really, really want uh, to thank these three for being so generous to give them, give me their time tonight, and thank you for coming. Apparently the book is on sale at the front here. The excellent book. Some reduced price. <laughs> thank you very much.